This is a post-Christian podcast. All right, everybody. Welcome to Revolution. Um, so glad you're here. Um, welcome to all online listeners, wherever you're at. Um, so, yeah. Ugh. Tough week. Anybody else? <laughs> Yeah, it was been a, been a tough week. Um, but also got to do Halloween with my kiddos. Man, they love Halloween. My daughter Minnie went as Minnie Mouse. My son went as Yoda. And um, we went with their mom to their mom's neighborhood. And the whole family got together, which is always nice. Because the kids really dig that. And... Uh, Learning to co-parent is a tough job, you guys. You know, it is, you know. But we're getting there, you know. It's really nice, you know. See the, see the, uh, <sighs> the progress we're making. But anyway, so there was that. It was, that was this week, and we had fun, and now I'm having to hide candy from my kids. Um, <laughs> make deals with them for the candy. One piece of candy. And Minnie, she likes to pour her whole candy bucket out to look at everything before she chooses her one candy. So that's a lot of fun. My house looks like it literally looks like a tornado went through it. Like, if you guys went to my house right now, you'd be like, does a serial killer live here? No. Um, So I need to clean. Um, Those are my complaints for life. Um. But yeah, so I've, I'm, you know, been doing a lot of thinking about anarchy lately, and and it's funny. I'm reading this book um, by Jacques. How do you pronounce his last name? Alul. Anyway, Pete pronounces it really nice. Um, it's Pete Rollins for you who don't know. But anyway, he he wrote this um, book called Anarchy and Christianity, and um, I've been kind of reading it because honestly, I've been a little bit disillusioned with politics lately on both sides. And so I've just been like, am I an anarchist? I don't know. Maybe I should look into this. And this is more of like, you know, this book's like from the 50s or 60s, 60s, 70s, I think. And um, it's funny that they put the punk rock anarchy symbol on there because I don't think this guy would ever have thought that. Because <laughs> um, a normal anarchy symbol is just a circle with an A in the middle. It's pretty cool looking, but... Anyway, um, so anarchy isn't always what people make it out to be, like, tell everybody to go to hell and, you know, no structure, you know, and just punch whoever you want. You know, that's not, our, that's not real anarchy. Anarchy is actually quite an interesting system. Um, and so sometimes I'll basically do sermons on, what is Jay reading? I mean, it's usually what I'm doing sermons on anyway. Just sometimes I tell you. And then other times I'm like, I was thinking the other day. <laughs> um, no, but this book um, has been really good, and it brought up something that I had never thought about, and I haven't heard in an argument, I don't think ever, in political arguments. Um, I've always heard Romans 13.1, which we'll read in a minute, but I've always heard that in arguments, but not this. So, are you ready? Your soul has, are you ready to listen to a dyslexic read? Get ready! <laughs> Um, I have read whole sermons before. Other people's sermons. I read Tillich's sermon once. 
accept that you're accepted. And because I didn't know how to edit, I had to read it all the way through perfectly. So I like started like five times and finally got it done. It was really fun. Um, when Jesus began his public ministry, this is in the book, the gospel tells us the story of his temptation. And you all remember that story? Jesus is in the desert. Um, the devil tempts him three times. The important temptations in this context, in the last, is in Matthew. The enemy takes Jesus to a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he goes, I will give you, this is in Matthew 4, 8, 9, I will give you all the things if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. So he's saying, I'll give you all these powers and all the rule of the world, you know, all these things if, you, if you'll bow to me. And Jesus goes, I will give you, uh, I will give you things. Because I will give you all the power and the glory of these kingdoms, for it has been given to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will pr- prostrate yourself before me, it shall all be yours. That's in Luke 4, 6 through 7. Again, my concern is not with the facticity of the records, nor with the theological problems. My concern is with the views of the writers, with the personal conviction that they express here. Hmm. What is that personal? Um, because basically what he's saying is, is basically the devil has control of all the powers of the world. You know, that it's the kingdoms, the rulers, all that is from the devil. Now, we're not going we're we're to look at what the devil means, too, here in a minute. Um, you know, it's not like the red-horned, pointy-eared, you know, what's that thing called? Pitchfork? <laughs> That he carries? Yeah, I couldn't remember the word pitchfork. That's a great one for me. Um, oh, yeah, I also lost my, my, my insurance last two weeks ago. That's been real fun, trying to get on Minnesota Care. So now I'm really in the thralls of what's going on in this world politically. Um. But in Romans 13.1, it says, Let every person be subject to the governor or authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist, ex- exist have been introduced by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, I think we've all probably heard this before. We've probably heard it from a lot of our conservative brothers and sisters whenever they're guy wins. Um, (laughs) And then for some reason, when the other person wins, this kind of goes out the door. But what we're hearing, but what we're seeing in, we're seeing the exact opposite in Jesus's temptation. So what do we do with that? Well, it's a contradiction in the Bible. Um, You know, one of the things I was thinking about calling this talk as anarchy and the contradictions of power in the Bible. So there you go, Caleb. <laughs> thinking ahead. Um, Caleb always has to be like, what do you want to call it? I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. So much pressure. Let's call it Fred. <laughs> um, 
It's so cute when people name their pets name normal names. Um, so we've got this 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 conflict of scripture that a lot of us don't think about, and and we'll see furthermore as this as we read along a little bit more in this book. I'm going to jump a few paragraphs. And he goes, the fact is no less important than the fact that Jesus rejects the devil's offer. Jesus does not say to the devil, it is not true, you do not have power over kingdoms, and he states, he does not dispute this claim. He refuses the offer of power because the devil demands that he should fall down before him and worship him. This is the sole point when he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and you shall serve him only and only him. Matthew 4.10. We may, we may thus say amongst Jesus' immediate followers and in the first Christian generation, political authorities, what we call the state, belonged to the devil, and those who helped power received it from him. We have to remember this when we study the trial of Jesus. Now remember that. We have to study this when we study the trial of Jesus. I'm going to jump over to when he talks about the trial of Jesus. Um, it's also very interesting in the Old Testament is that God constantly warns the prophets who are only supposed to be in leadership temporary for eight years. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, Four-year segments, then they vote. Um, but not to have kings. You know, you go, oh, what about King David? What about all that? If you look at... You know, King David was kind of an ass a lot of times, very mean person. Um, he would definitely not survive in this culture. Um, but if you look how the kings came about, they came about through people saying, no, we want this. We want it. We want it. We want it. And God saying, no, no, you don't want it. And then God going, okay, well, you can have it if you do A, B, C, D. And I love how my... Um, my Calvinist brothers and sisters say, God doesn't change his mind. <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, it seems like God changed God's mind a lot in the Old Testament. Um, it even says God repents at one point. So I don't know what you do with that. Anyhow, though, God lets them over to that. But it always seems to end up badly. There always seems to be something wrong with people who have who get the power, power seems to corrupt, right? And so we see that in the Old Testament happen as all these kings and stuff, and then we just kind of take it for granted that then, you know, they have kings, all, and then we talk about King David, but we're like, you know, there should have never actually been a King David because of the way the systems were set up was to have these temporary prophets who came in and spoke to, uh, to the people and did that thing, and they came down and came back and joined the people. You know, that was the idea. Um, it you know it was kind of to be a system within the system really, and they all wanted a system, and so God said, "Okay, there you go. Here's your system," and it didn't work out very well. Um, a further question is why reference why <clears throat> I'm reading from the book again. A further question is why reference is here made to the devil. And he talks about this. He, he says here, the Diablo, Diablos, or etymologically, the divider, not a person. So it's actually translated as the divider. 
the one who's coming up tempting him, not, not a person, but the divider, an idea. And, and, and what uh, Jacques says here is, the state and politics are a primary reason for division. So, the state and politics thus are primary reasons for division. And to be alive now, I think we see that. You know, to be alive in this world now, we see politics being such a huge thing of, 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 of separating us. So I, my question is, is power given by God, as Paul would say, or is it a system of separation, a further system of separation? Um, you know, the kingdom, it's, you know, the kingdom divided, you know. We are a country divided. And, and it's not just by religion, because a lot of people want to say we're divided because of religion. But really right now, if you go and spend any time on social media, what we're really divided by, and the religious people included are divided by, is, is by politics. And, and often the politics reflected then in one's religion or lack of religion. You know? Someone's like, well, my problems are with religion, so that's why I don't want these guys. You know, and then the person is like, you know, well, I'm religious, so I want these people, you know. And then someone says, well, I'm a real Christian, and that's why I want these people, you know. And you're not a real Christian if you vote for this person. You're not a real Christian, you know. And all of a sudden, this division just, boom, blows up. And then you get this, uh, you know, um, culture of just calling each other out constantly and just going to war rather than having good conversations, or rather than having good disagreements, we go to straight to war with each other, and we get the separation. So it seems to really make sense what's being said in this Christianity, uh, anarchy and Christianity is saying to me. But we have to deal with Romans 13.1. But I will tell you this. I have found other places in the Bible, even in the same books, where there are contradictions. One of the Gospels says God will not judge, you know, and then right a few verses later it says, you know, he leaves that to Christ, and then the first view of Christ says, I will not judge, I leave that to the Father. You know, and you go, okay, so who's judging here? You know, um, it's pretty interesting. I mean, that's the reason, it's a collection of writings, it's a collection of books. If we want to put it up on this pedestal and think it was like this magic book delivered down by God, we, we kind of miss the point. We're, we're, it's people interacting with what they understand as God. And that's what theology is, you know? And so this is just a theological view of, you know, maybe power is part of the problem, you know? And, and so I'm just, I'm going through this with you today as as a curious observer as well. I'm not here just to say, like, I agree with this 100%. I'm going through this saying, this is what I'm wrestling with. I'm wrestling with politics and power and putting faith in one person, you know? And um, 
I've seen this. I'm going around where everybody's mad. It, this picture of all these preachers praying for the president, and everybody's mad. They're praying for the president and all this stuff. And it's like, <clears throat> I'm like, when did it become like horrible to pray for somebody? You know what I mean? Like, aren't we supposed to be good to our enemies and do? That? You know what I mean? I'm like, really? This is what we're going to shame them for? I mean, like, I'm not saying these guys are like right on because they're up there standing, but because they're praying. You know, like, really? That's, we're mad about that? You know, like, even if you don't like the president, if you actually believe in prayer or use prayer, then that's probably something you should be using when you're thinking about someone you don't like or you're thinking about a hopeless situation, you know? And then you have to get into the theology of does God intervene or not intervene or does God, you know? That's a lot of theology, It's a rabbit hole, really. But let's look at this today. Is is the enemy, is division, is power given as, is, is it a system of separation? And have we allowed it to entice us and play us? Are we being played by politics? Has it just taken over our basic human natures and our fallen nature, and when I say fallen, I mean our own brokenness, our own humanity, and taking advantage of that and cause us to go against one another. Now, I'm not going to say we need to get rid of politics because I don't believe that. You know, I mean, I, I believe that, you know, I believe in things like the welfare system. I believe in, in, a, in, in a government system that should operate well and help people when they're in need. You know, I mean, I, I believe in that and should create laws that protect minorities and things like that, but that's not always been the case, especially not for very long, you know? That's something we're still dealing with and still going through. But are the answers always in that power? And sometimes I feel like people put their faith in one politician. Usually who's going to be president, you know? And and it's like, I mean, Obama said this really cool thing about woke culture and said, you know, you know we've got to stop calling each other out. We think we're woke. We think we're all this, you know. And he's like, and, you know, and we just we don't make any error for margins. And then we end up creating this circle where we're just shooting each other, even, even people on our own side, because they veer off just a very little bit from what we believe, you know. And I thought it was really good, you know. And I was reading comments, and one of the comments was like, you know, he's still sent bombs that killed, like, a wedding, or he still hit, you know, killed, you know, innocent school children, still got killed by bombs that he gave the... And I was like, oh, you know, you're right. You know, what I was thought of the hypocrisy when everybody got angry at Ellen for sitting next to George W. Bush recently, everybody was, like, mad at Ellen because she got invited to a party and made one of our ex-presidents smile. Like, if you're in this rage over Ellen sitting next to the president, uh, George W. Bush, you should be this angry when she sits next to Obama as well. You know, these people aren't innocent. The fact is, if someone is a president, the likelihood of them having blood on their hands is very high. Now, I'm a lifelong Democrat, you know, and, and we'll always have left leanings. That's just where I'm at. I mean, maybe not always, but I feel like I will probably always have those leanings. Um, 
you know, and then I had somebody who was sitting down with a Trump person, and they were like, have you thought about the lack of war that's happened with Trump? You know, and I was like, really? And he's going over these things with me, and, he's, and I was like, yeah, I didn't go fact check it, but I was like, wow, you know, it's funny we don't talk about that. You know, I'm, I'm, I am an easy one to say, like, I do not like this president. I do not like the way he treats people. I do not like the laws that he's helped pass. I do not like that. But I also don't like war. You know, I don't like sending people over to kill other people. I don't like bloodshed, you know. So if there's less bloodshed, that's one thing I can say. I like less bloodshed. Call me crazy. You know. And so then I mentioned that to another one of my friends, and they said, well, he just must not have anything financially to gain from war. And so I was like, okay, now we're looking at this. Okay. You know, so everybody has kind of their opinion and their way to separate it and split it rather than saying like, Oh, okay, well, maybe this is some area that we can look at and go like, okay, that's not bad, you know. Um, but no, we don't, we just, we would like to put everybody in the same place. And everybody is, contradic- is a contradiction. We all have contradictions. Even when you know you have contradictions, you're still a contradiction. You still have those. Now you just are aware that you have those. And we don't seem to be able to live in a world full of contradictions. It's like we're not ready. You know, and we're not ready for our own contradictions. We're not ready to be faced with that. And that's often what happens when you sit down and have an honest political discussion with someone from another side, and they point certain things out, and you go like, ooh, you know? Like when me and Caleb went for the kids in cages thing, you know, um, someone asked me, like, did you go protest Obama when he, you know, with what all the stuff he did to people who were coming you know, all the deporting he did, because they called him the deporter-in-chief, was his nickname. And I was like, no, you know, I didn't, because I was in a haze, and I wish, honestly, I would have known, because I would have, had I known it. But the fact is, it was something that came to my attention later. But I do remember a few people saying things. Cornell West, I remember saying things, and standing up against, you know, calling Obama out on things when it needed to be called out. And I always respected that, you know. Um... But my, my thing is, is you can't put your faith in people, really, um, but you can love people and you can have hope for people. But one pe- person that I would just really particularly say be weary of putting your faith in is someone who is a politician. We need them, but instead of putting our faith in them, we need to hold them accountable. You know? And we need to hold our own accountable. I don't think Trump would have been president had more of us held people, tried to hold people more accountable. If people like Hillary Clinton would have been held more accountable. If, if um, what's the other guy running for president right now? Um, Bernie Sanders would have had more of a chance, maybe. I don't know. You know, but look what we did to each other in that on our own politi- in that own, in that political system I'm speaking from sorry I'm speaking from a democratic view but there was a mess there and we should have held each other accountable for that mess you know 
rather than saying, it's all this guy's fault, it's all these people's fault, it's all those fault. You know what I mean? It's like, well, you know, we need to look at our own lives sometimes and examine ourselves and continue to work on ourselves. Because one thing I've learned in relationships is I can't control what the other person does or thinks or says as much as I want to. I can't control that. The only thing I can control is how I respond and what I say and how I react. And my goal is to try to do that out of a heart of grace and love. And if you think there's no correction in love, then you've never loved children before. (laughs) You know? You think there's no correction in grace? You've never had children before? You've never been married before? You know? Love disagrees sometimes because there's contradictions in it. You know? I didn't think I'd have that much to say about this, but I did. So I'm going to jump over to, uh, you know, I wrote a book a few years ago um, called, um, what was it called? My walking with the unknown God, faith and doubt, faith doubt. There was no amber sand, which I kind of wish there was now. Um, but faith doubt and other lines I've crossed, walking with the unknown God. That was three different titles, and they just threw them all into the book. And I have Pete Rollins to thank for that because the publisher was there, and Pete like threw out three ideas, and the publisher was like, "I love it, I love it," and they just loved Pete Rollins at the time. I love it, I love it, and then they then came to me, and I'm like, "Doesn't that seem a little wordy?" And they're like, "Trust me, Jay." Long title, sell. Don't worry. It's fine. And yeah, yeah, that book was my probably least selling book and my favorite book. But in that I did, Walking with the Unknown God, I talk about Paul when he goes up and, and he's with all these different people and he points to this, this uh, I see you have a, you know, you're very religious people and I see you have a marker here to the unknown God, you know, and He's like, this is the God I serve. And I was going into talking about how we all serve an unknown God. Now, that wasn't exactly what Paul was saying, you know, because I think Paul was saying in some ways you can know God. Um, but I took it in another direction because that's what you do in theology often in philosophy, and you kind of find things within it, and you find the truth that you see, and you pull from it. Um, so it was, you know, and that was the funny thing is, is you know who, who said, called me out on that? I'm going to go right back to saying their name one more time during this talk. You could probably start a drinking game around how many times I say Pete. Pete was like, that was a bit of a stretch. I'm like, oh, if I would have just said a a radical reading of Paul, then it would have been fine. But instead, it was a stretch. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Um, So anyway, if you ever read a Pete Rollins book, you know stretching looks like... Um, so there, Pete. Hope you're listening. Um, hopefully, I'll get a text next week. You son of a bitch. Um, so, in sixty, page sixty-five of Anarchy and Christianity, um, it, he. This is. We jump over to the trial of Jesus, which was mentioned earlier. The trial of Jesus is the last episode in his life that we need to consider in this context. He was tried twice, once before the Sanhedrin and once before Pilate. Before going into his, into his attitude, we must first deal with the pi- pre- premierly 
question, primarily question. Most theologians include Karl Barth. Take it, it that since Jesus agreed to appear before the jurisdiction of Pilate, he showed respect for the authority and did not revolt against the verdict. And this proves that he regarded the jurisdiction as legitimate. And we thus have here a bias for the power of the state. Okay? I have to say that I find this interpretation astounding, for I read the story in precisely the opposite way. Oh, okay. You know, these French anarchists. <laughs> um, Pilate represents Rome's authority and applies to Roman law. Now, the interesting thing about this writer is that he was a, a um, professor and taught on Roman history and Roman law. So he really knows it. And I was like, oh, okay. Now I concede that no civilization ever created so well-developed a law that could give such a decision in trials, debates, and conflicts. I say this without irony. Oh, he says it right here. I taught Roman law for 20 years and discovered all the nuances and the skills of jurisdictions whose aim was to say that was right. They defend the law as the art of the good, the equitable. And I I can guarantee you in hundreds of concrete cases, the rendering decision which showed that they were ineffective, despising justice. The Romans were not the first to insist ferocious fighters and conquerors, as they are often described. The chief achievement was was Roman law, he says. A little problem with virtually no one considered is that their army, strictly speaking, was never large. That's interesting. And I'm not going to get into the whole facts of that. I'm going to jump down a little bit. It was through administrative skill and through the equilibrium established by skillful and satisfying legal measures that the empire ended, endured for five centuries. We have to bear this in mind in evaluating the accounts of the trial that they tell us. The law of which Romans <clears throat> were so proud of, the, the, were so proud of, and which provided the justice solution, what did it accomplish by the ins- by its insistence? It allowed the Roman prosecutor to yield to the mob and to condemn the innocent man to death for no valid reason. Could you imagine that if that was today? Well, we'll just go out and we'll just take a Twitter poll and then we'll decide if you die or not, you know. Um, Let me see if I can even jump a little bit further with this. Yeah, I'm going to just jump over to a little bit more of the meat so we can get this thing done in time and not be here all day. One of the things he says, it seems that Jesus did not regard these authorities as in any way just, and that it was thus completely useless to defend himself, is one of his arguments, is that Jesus was like, there's just no reason to defend myself to this, because this is not a just system. And we see that in kind of how Jesus reacts. Now, as someone who thinks about this kind of stuff, you're always like, how do people know what was going on? Who is the, you know, how do the writers know what Jesus was saying in this, like, you know? There weren't. There wasn't any court 
one of the people that type in the courts. There were none of them there. Um, were no record keepers. But somehow they figured out what happened. I'm not going to say they were guessing. Um, or maybe Jesus told him when he came back. He's like, this is what happened. Write it down. I'm going to make sure you guys figure this out. I tried, you know, this is what I said. He was very saucy, Jesus was. And he didn't stop being Jesus when he went on trial, you know. I mean, he was like questioning and asked questions, and then he would just give back questions, you know. Like if I was one of Jesus' disciples, I would have been like, Jay, the frustrated. (laughs) You know. He was constantly frustrated with Jesus asking, answering questions with questions. Who does Jesus think he is? Rob Bell. <laughs> You're not answering the right question. Um, at one point, Jesus said, you would not have the least power over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, who delivered me to you is more guilty than me. Now, listen to this. this is, I think this is from John 19, 10, and 11. It says... Pilate said to Jesus, you refuse to speak to me. Do you not know that I have power to free you or to have you crucified? And that's when Jesus replied, you would not have the least power over me unless it had been given to you from above. Now listen to this. Therefore, he who delivered me to you is more guilty than you. So he's saying, you know, the one who brought you here is more guilty, and I was brought here by something greater than you. What does this mean? Well, this is what our friend here, Elul, thinks, is Jesus is recognizing that Pilate has his power from God. But, is that what it's happening? Because this is what it says. He says, the famous from above has been taken differently. Those who think that political power is from God find it a confirmation. Jesus is recognizing that Pilate has his power from God. But in this case, I defy anyone to explain what he meant by the second part of his reply. How can the one who has delivered up Jesus be guilty if he has been delivered up to the authorities, which is from God? Pretty interesting question, right? Why am I sitting here reading a book to you right now? And that's why, you know, like most pastors would just memorize this stuff and then and, and tell you in a different way. Not me. I'm lazy. Um, one of my superpowers. And I just don't have the time to BS. Um, how can one who has delivered up Jesus be guilty if he has been delivered up to the authorities which is from God. A second interpretation is purely historical. Jesus is saying to Pilate that his power was given by the emperor. That's another argument. I have to say, though, that I can make no sense at all at all of these views. I love this. I love theologians. What point is there if we can make no sense of these views? What point is there if Jesus is telling Pilate that he depends on the emperor? What is the relevance of this discussion? Finally, there's the seldom advocated interpretation that I myself favor. So he's saying he favors a seldom advocated interpretation. Jesus is telling Pilate that his power is from the spirit of evil. Now that's a hard one to handle because everybody would, if you, if you just read a lot of the New Testament and you read Romans, you're going to think, well, no, they were from God. But then would you say that Hitler was from God? You know, 
if you're a Democrat, do you say, you know, Bush was from God? Or if you're a Republican, do you say Obama was from God? You know what I mean? It's We are very, like, contradictive people and very, like, you know, say what we want to say. You know, but we're full of contradictions. You know, one minute God's got the power, and the next minute we're like, oh, you know. We're under God's judgment if we vote this person in. But didn't just last, didn't just, you just say the last guy was here because God pointed him. You know, like God's got the voting booths. You know, just put in a little thing so we can't really choose who we vote for. So what is the seldom one that he himself lives? Jesus is telling Pilate that his power is a spirit of evil. This is keeping with what was said about the temptation, namely that all powers and kingdoms in the world depend on the devil. It also keeps with the reply of Jesus to the chief priests that we quoted above, namely that the power of darkness is at work in this trial. That's what Jesus says. So now we have to go, you know, what's going on? Um, I'll end it with what he, he kind of says. that Jesus, He said, Jesus spoke to Pilate in such a way as to not be understood. And this lengthy series of texts relating to Jesus' face-to-face encounter with the political and the religious authorities, we find irony, scorn, non-cooperation, indifference, and sometimes accusations. Jesus was no gorilla. He was an essential disputer. That's pretty interesting, right? And if you go through and read the story, you'll go, oh, wow, you know, Jesus, what is, you know, and the pilot's like, what is truth? You know, and Jesus is like, so, it, you know, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, you have said it, so it must be true. You know, and it, you know, he's like Yoda. And um, Yoda on trial. Um, so I guess my question here is, is one right? Is both right? Is neither right? So I guess for me personally, what I, my reflection of this would be what's the third way? You know, especially coming from a two-party system. What is the third way? That I'm not going to play by either's rules. That's what anarchy for me would say. And that's what I've been trying to live out the past few months by asking people to sit down together and talk to one another and not just throw each other out with the bathwater. You know, to have hard conversations. You know, to argue well. To not scapegoat each other. As they're all this or they're all that. You know, because we just continue to repeat the same thing over and over again. We just do the same thing to each other and we don't even realize it, that we're playing the same part with just a different name. You know? And I don't want that in my life and I faith. I don't want to have scapegoats anymore. I don't grow if I have a scapegoat. I don't change. I don't become a better human being. I don't become 
more caring about this world if I just say, it's all your fault, and I'm right, and too bad you're not as right as me, you know? Are we putting our hopes and power or our despair into politics? You know? That's the problem with thinking of God as this just all-powerful demigod being of just, well, I'm going to control everything. And I'm, doing, you know, seeing God in this, like, you know, as this old white man in the sky, you know, is just a problem. You know? My son asked me last night, yeah, I said, oh, I'm going to study and study my Bible. And he said, what is the Bible? And I was like, well, it's a book about God and Jesus and stuff like that. And because I don't push a lot of stuff on my kids at this age because they're four and two. And I had that stuff pushed on me. So I don't want to just tell them what's right for them. Their mother's an atheist. I'm a Christian. And, um, and he's like, well, you know, the Bible is everywhere. That was interesting. And I was like, oh, he's already starting to become a theologian. He's like, it's in this room. It's in the kitchen. It's in the... And I'm like, well, actually, he's just going to... He's supposed to be sleeping right now. So he's probably trying to also work a way to not sleep. I go, okay, buddy. I'm like, you know, well, I said, mine's actually in the kitchen. And I've got to go in there and read it, you know, because I've got church tomorrow. And, uh, and he goes, what is God? You know, where is God? You know, I'm going like, oh, man, you know. All right, well, just tell them what I think, you know. This is my time with the kids, all right? So I was like, what do I think, you know? And then I have to, like, you know, do I explain to them that I think God's the ground of all being, you know? <clears throat> so I said, well, I just said, God's a part of everything. And everything and runs through everything. I was giving more of a new age concept of God, you know. And he's like, is God space? Does God live in space? You know, and I said, well, no. You know, God is part of space. God's bigger than space, you know, in my idea of what God is. And so God's a giant, you know, and I was just like, oh, this is not going anywhere fast, you know. And he's probably giving me the most logical answers to all those questions, you know, because that's what kids often do, you know. And um, I'm like, well, no, not really a giant, buddy. I'm like, part, and he's like, well, is God in the... Is God in the dirt? And I said, well, you know, I think God's in the dirt. Yeah. So he's like, oh, okay. Okay. You know, I'll probably have to sit down with his mom and say, hey, he asked me these questions. Um, but I don't know why I told you that story. Was there a reason? Anybody? Anybody following along on this talk with me? No? Um, you know, it's just the idea is, like, we you know, oh, yeah, what is God? Is God this all-powerful being? You know, so we had this you know, theological discussion, me and my four-year-old. Um, what is God? That's a great question. It's a great one, and we'll ponder that forever. You know, in my writings before, I said, if you figure out God, God ceases to be God, in my mind. Um, and you become God because you know what God is and you have the answer. 
And often when you think you have the answer and you got the power, what happens? Division. So I like to hold things lightly. And so I've decided I'm going to live the third way. And I'm not going to play by either's rules. Um, that might be the punk rocker in me, and you know, or some might be the person who tried to be somebody else for a long time for somebody else and wasn't able to be that and realize that. That was a tough thing to realize. Um, you know, it's a funny thing is the people we try to be sometimes um, for others when it really doesn't end up helping. We have to learn to be ourselves and be who we are and accept ourselves. And so I'm accepting myself as being this third-way type of thinker. And I don't know if it's anarchy yet or not. I'm going to look more into it and, and see. Um, you know, But I would say there's probably more evidence to support what this book is saying as far as fruit from what we've seen in power and in politics and in extreme wealth. There's probably more truth to this view than there is in Romans 13.1. Because if Romans 13.1 is right, then we've got a lot of hard theology to try to figure out. And you know what? I am probably one of the more Polinian pastors you'll meet. You know, I, I was a part of a group called Red Letter Christians, and it kind of frustrated me a little bit because I'm like, why are we throwing out Paul? Because I wouldn't understand what grace is without Paul. You know, Paul built off of this wonderful foundation that Jesus laid, but Paul built things that I could actually interact with and understand a little bit more, especially the book of Galatians. And, um, you know, so what do I do with Paul's interpretation of Roman 1? I just go, I don't agree. And Paul would be fine with that because Paul said God's no respecter of man. And, you know, Paul didn't agree with, the, with Peter and rebuked Peter. So Paul knew that there was always going to be theological issues in, in different disbelief systems. And maybe Paul would have changed his mind at this point, you know? What was Paul saying? I don't know. I'm going to have to study Romans 13.1 a lot more to try to figure out really what, where is that coming from? What is Paul saying? And maybe that will be another talk another time. So there you go today, you know, something for you to reflect on and think about and no answers. So uh, as I sometimes do, I will leave you with this. Good luck with that. All right. Thanks for listening uh, to Revolution Church. And uh, yeah, please come check us out sometime in person. We've got a listener here today from New York, right? And a friend from Alberta, Canada. Yeah. So pretty cool. Thanks again, everybody. And uh, hopefully we'll meet you soon. All right, now is the part of our service um, where we talk to each other. We call it afterglow. <laughs> Sometimes we connect the talks. I think we should probably just start connecting them all the time. That might just be the way to go. Just be like, if you don't want to listen to afterglow, turn your 
iPod off. Um, if you still have an iPod from five years ago. <laughs> so yeah, is there uh, any feedback or thoughts? I'll just accept your silence as pure agreement. <laughs> yes, in the back. We've set up a microphone for you, and then you sat back there. I know. I was very late. Um, well, in First Samuel, when the people asked for a king, I mean, basically, Samuel was talking to God, and God said, you know, I'll give them a king, all right. You know, they're rejecting me, so this is the kind of king. He will tax them. He will make their sons go to battle. They'll break up their families and take their daughters. I mean, basically, it was almost like give them what they want, but it's not its not my thought. It's not my intention for them to have a king. Yeah. So I would say that all power is not yeah, I mean, yeah, right. I mean, that's what is that? First Samuel. First Samuel eight. First Samuel eight. You know, it's like I'll give them a king if they want. King. Yeah, like you want it because they rejected me. So there seems to be a lot of support in the Old Testament for what we're seeing here. I mean, is anyone shocked that we're disagreeing with Paul? Do you have a burning desire? Well, um, I guess the thesis and the antithesis <laughs> is sort of that concept. Like, is are the rulers of the earth uh, given dominion by God, or are they given dominion by the devil, or you know, who's the puppet master behind the scenes? And you're asking about like, what's the third way? Yeah. And I have read a lot of Walter Wink's material. He wrote a book called The Powers That Be, or a series of books called The Powers That Be. And I feel like he's got a cool take on things. He seems to be a fairly uh, normative Christian, but he views the powers and principalities on the earth as being entities that you can talk about in theological terms because when people start organizing in groups, they take on sort of uh, larger powers that you can maybe only talk about in terms of it being a spirit or in sort of kind of a metaphysical language is a way that you can actually describe actual real events that happen in, in the world. So you could say, and I think that uh, public relations is all about trying to spin the narrative as to what your spirit of your company or your political campaign, like what it's all about. So is is the spirit hope and change? Well, if you say it enough, then that's what people think of. <laughs> yeah. uh, or, you know, a, a big company is always trying to portray themselves as X type of feeling like where our brand has gives you this feeling about yourself when you see our logo or whatnot. But I think it's important, and perhaps a role of the church to be somewhat similar to like the fourth estate, where journalism is trying to keep 
the government accountable via factual, you know, dictation of of events. I think that the church and religious entities can try to keep the powers that be accountable by using narratives and stories and dialogue to try to talk about these real life entities that that are created when people get together. And you sort of see that in the word uh, corporation, whether it be a nonprofit corporation or a for-profit, uh, corporeal you know, is to be made into a body or a body-like thing. And so perhaps that's the third way that you, you that one could take is that there's not a metaphysical god in the sky or some demon uh, devil figure that's from above like uh, the puppet master of the kings or the, the presidents but instead it's just a bunch of people that get together and you they create uh, entities by doing so and we can talk about those entities in theological language yeah I mean I guess the problem is, is when we get seduced by those entities yeah So, <clears throat> kind of want to talk a little bit about if you bring up the the third way, yeah. right? Um, and and I, I guess I guess I, I I've always been concerned when someone associates themselves with a group holistically, um, and, and I guess as I've looked at it, even with Paul as he talked with the Philippians, right, about and encouraging them to continue to question, yeah, and. And I do believe that that you know, as as we're going through these things, it, it is our right, our our jobs to to question what's going on there, and not just to holistically believe whatever is out there, because I think that does hold accountability. Um, I think it, it brings up the point of being able to take action on your own yeah. um, as well, um, and and you also don't get duped by anything that's out there, because I think yeah, because I because I think the other piece that we do as humans is that whenever there is somebody in a position of authority, we place unrealistic ex- expectations yeah. unrealistic expectations on them that they have to be perfect. Yeah. And, and, and that's just not real. Like, everybody has their strengths, everybody has their faults. Mm-hmm. And so if we can sit there and constantly question what is right, by the grace of God, what should be being done? You can sit there objectively and say that it might be a Republican president or a Democratic president, but here's the things that I believe are being done right. Here's the things that I believe are being done wrong. And I think there's unity that can be gained from that, from everybody, the third way. I agree. No, I totally agree. I just wish it was... Maybe that was very well put. I, I I wish it was we could do it that way. I mean, I just wish we could... Easier said than it is done. It is easier said than done. You know? Um, two, because I feel like a lot of people believe they did, they're they doing that. Yeah. By calling out the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess we, what we do is we let our anger towards something often stifle our self-reflection. Well, and I think there's there's also as humans we we run in, into uh, a, a scary scenario where we'll try to 
get our surroundings and everyone else's beliefs to to fit into what our pain is. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and we try to justify what's going on there because of the pain that we might be feeling or going through. It, prior to us honestly looking inside first to say, mm-hmm. you know, what's really driving that? What's really causing that for me to have this perspective? And, and, be, and, and allow then at that point to be open to others' insights. I think, too, people are getting into relationships with the idea of what you want that relationship to be with the thought in your mind like this would be a perfect relationship if this changed instead of saying I just accept you for who you are fully all of your good and all of your bad that doesn't happen most people say like you're amazing except for this if you just change this you'd be perfect you know and that I think that part of it is really difficult and causing a huge divide too you know even in your own personal relationships in your life like love somebody for everything they are you I mean, know, even that, the ugly, even the ugly side. I think that was the problem with my last my, my, my last marriage. Yeah. We just thought, oh, you're wonderful, and if only you would change this, and you would change. And then right. we just realized, like, oh, we just want each other to change huge integral yeah. parts and of pe- our life. And people don't change. That's the thing. You, yeah. you, ch- you change only for yourself, not for others, really. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think you you made a good point too. The, the good point is that self reflection prior to jumping into the. Mm-hmm. to the judgment or to the critique mm-hmm. is pretty important you know and what I've had to learn through my last year of my life is a lot of self-reflection and to look into myself and what I don't want and what I don't need in my life mm-hmm. and so now I've had to set boundaries and open other doors and do this you know and be way more communicative than I've ever been and also be willing to have hard discussions because mm-hmm. I was always a Fear conflict. I'll tell you what, if you fear conflict and you get in marriage, you're probably not going to, you know, and you have someone else who doesn't fear conflict, you're in a weird, <laughs> create something really weird, you know? And so now I've realized, like, my problem was I was fear of conflict, afraid to look at myself, afraid to say who I was, afraid to stand up for what I believed and, and these different things. And so I had to let the fear of conflict go, even though, you know, sometimes people love conflict. Um, I, but I had to look at that inside me but, and I had to realize that conflict doesn't mean the end mm-hmm. conflict means oh this person gets to know who I am and what I want and what I don't need and rather than thinking that that's all okay and I must be the one who was wrong mm-hmm. you know Rather than just let's not have any conflict here, let's just be quiet, you know. I mean, I think that's the problem is, is we want either complete anger and, and, and rebuke and we wait till it's too late or we want nothing at all, you know. And that's the problem is we don't have, we, we, we don't, we either fear conflict or are afraid that conflict is going to make us look weak. We're we willing to participate in it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's yeah, you so many people get caught up in defining themselves in that belief and that willingness to fight for that belief without putting that thought behind it. Kind of like you were talking about earlier, the things that I'm reading now, I'm I'm putting everything in the context of what I've just read lately. Uh, on the website Wait But Why, Wait But Why, he has this huge new article about it and one part of it is talking about how people 
think, how people consider reasoning, and, you know, the, and his levels of things. You have kind of a top part, which is the scientific method. You know, you you go into it with wanting make a hypothesis, and now let's beat the heck out of it. Yeah. You know, I'm not. You beat the heck out of it with me, and I'll try and defend it. You know, from a from the other side, but you know, it's not personal. So when you're talking about that fear of conflict and that. That's in a different point than that scientific method kind of thinking about it of yeah kick it around you know it's not personal let's 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 mm-hmm. but then you know there's another level down which he kind of calls like the sports fan sort of way you have a way you kind of want it to go but you're still kind of willing you know at the end of the day you're not willing to die on that hill sort of mm-hmm. thing and then it kind of goes all the way through the other end of being the zealot where you're not willing to let in any more information mm-hmm. that doesn't confirm what you already mm-hmm. believe in. And I think a lot of the things we're talking about are people falling on different places on that spectrum. It's so hard to be that scientific thinker and not take it personal when you have something you emotional feel in your connection. yeah your emotional part of I feel like this is right and I want you to see it that way. But it real quickly snowballs sometimes into that zealot end of thing. Yeah, I mean, especially when people are questioning your identity, yeah. you know, or your sexuality. Or your race, or you know, something that's so part of you, you know, and then you have the question: Is, is that conflict worth having? When I was at Spark, I had somebody say, "Well, Jay, you know, uh, as a gay person, why would I want to go into a place where my humanity is not recognized?" Mm-hmm. You know, and, and uh, I said, "Well, I'll tell you why." <laughs> is because somebody had to go into the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Association, when they were not recognized as human beings, and say, I want to be recognized as a human being, which eventually led to them recognizing LGBTQ people as human beings and as equals. You know, But it took someone to originally go in there and say, I'm going to put myself on the line. And I'm not saying that everyone should do that. Um, the world would probably be a lot better place than we did. Um, but, you know, I identify more with the person who's willing to put themselves in the line, even if they don't have a dog in the fight. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I've always just, that's how my parents raised me, is, is to, to do that. I think a lot of people are afraid of the conflict because then it means compromise. Yeah. Like, where do I have to compromise what I want or what benefits me to benefit everybody? Yeah. Thing compromise is so tough, necessary, it's just so necessary, yeah, because we're also different and we can all exist together, it's okay, right? If everybody's willing, but But if we shut down and just force out anger and don't say anything, then we're lost, lost. So we've got to figure out a better way to communicate, right? Right? I mean, the scientific method I really like, um, listen. Yeah, it's not always going to work though. Yeah, you know? sure. Because it's going to have personal stuff, and that's the hard thing. Is I have a hard time telling certain people in my life, like, well, you have to look at it in the scientific way. And like, they're like, no, my life and my humanity is being questioned here. Mm-hmm. You know, so I have to go like, okay, you know, let me listen to you then, because I'm, the, you know, the heterosexual white male in the room. <laughs> Um, you know, and, 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 and let's try to work this out together in a way that's, that we can figure out how to make this beneficial. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's really tough to ask people to leave their identities at the door. Yeah. You know? I've been thinking lately. Yeah. It would, 
it would be really interesting for me as a writing project, but just as a source of information, assuming that people on their bumper stickers, people that have bumper stickers, are telling you the something that's important about themselves in that bumper sticker, that this is this is what they want people to know. Yeah. I think it would be really interesting and maybe powerful to, um, if you see people, say, at a gas station or in a parking lot, if they're out there at the same time you are, and maybe, for example, I've seen kind of bastardizations of the American flag where people have changed it. For example, I saw one that has assault rifles for stripes and bullet holes for stars. Jeez. I think it would, but I think it would be really interesting to approach the person who owns that vehicle, or really any bumper sticker, and just say, I know that people in bumper stickers are trying to to convey a message, and I'm listening. Yeah. What, what is it that... But what is it that you really want to communicate? Because... It might not be, I mean, I think that's a pretty aggressive example, but it might not be what I expect. Yeah. Um, you know, I I just think that we're communicating in sound bites, and there's a story behind everyone. Yeah. And I think it's in finding venues and opportunities when we can find out more about that story. Yeah. That's the way, that's the only way that we're going to communicate. Because it's like we're trying to communicate at the level of ideology, and that's not where we live. I mean, we live, we buy groceries, and we go to work, and we have pets, and I mean, we're trying to communicate at, at the ideological level with people we don't even know, yeah. without letting them know us and us know them Maybe we've lost that because of social media a lot. I think we have, but I think we have to think of ways to remove it. So if somebody's going to communicate with me in a soundbite, I want to know really what they're wanting to say and why. Yeah. It's important enough to put it on your car. So. Well, it's like how the rabbis handled scripture in one little verse. And just sit and tear it apart. You know, figure out where is it, what's this, what is it, you know, just examine, 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 examine. But not to have the agenda of, well, so here's here's the way you should think, or yeah. here's what I think. But just to say, I want to hear what, what you're trying to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I like that. I, I feel lucky enough to have have some people in my life who think differently than me and are willing to tell me. And it's caused me to be empathetic. Is that because you're willing to receive it without saying, well, I actually think this. And yeah, I'm willing it? to bite my tongue. And, and really hear what they have to say. Yeah, yeah because I mean, then the part of me is like, well, actually, I want to change your mind. <laughs> I mean, I had a conversation with somebody and I was like, it doesn't sound like I'm like, it doesn't sound like you're cha- I'm going to change your mind. And like, well, do you have to? I was like, no, but... I want to. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But they thought in a completely different sphere than I was thinking. Yeah. You know? 
as far as politics, they were thinking like personal and family. And then these the other person was thinking globally, you know, and I'm going like, oh, I'm thinking globally and everybody, you know what I mean? So I'm like, oh, no. And then I was like, oh, well, it doesn't, you know, I can't not validate their It even comes back to concern. your perception. Yeah. Like, it was so total perception. Yeah, where are you coming from? Because you're in two completely different places in your mind on those levels. It's not even, you can't even compare. It's like apples to oranges. Yeah. When you're looking at everybody or you're looking at your family, very intimate, right? Yeah. I'm hopeless now. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to be hopeless. It's just, just we got a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. Faith without works is dead. <laughs> <laughs> now I know why it says that. Anybody else? Yeah, I think kind of to, yeah. <laughs> speak. Alluding to what was said earlier about like our identity and how we kind of cling to it or form or cling to this form of identity that we've assigned to ourselves. You know, when you look at these maybe like sports fanatic slash zealots, I think it's because they see the players on the field as their avatars. Mm -hmm. So they see themselves on the field. And so when somebody, you know, gets tackled or hit in the knee then they're getting tackled hit in the knee and it's really this false sense of self that we're putting on ourselves um, when we look at the world through that lens the issue is not that my sports team is being you know jeopardized and the win is being jeopardized it's the fact that I'm choosing to allow that to be my identity which is not the identity is that I like the sport but that's not the only thing that makes me uh, as a human being. Same as with somebody like me who is gay, that's a part of me, but that's not all of me. There's something deeper that I think we need to understand that we are connected in a certain way. And if our identity is in the Christ, then we need to kind of focus on that versus a political party or, an, a, you know, whatever it is. So I think that's a thing that kind of came to my head. Yeah, that's awesome, Robert. That's a great place to leave it. Thanks, everyone. That was a post-Christian podcast.